friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 29 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And joining me on the line is my good friend and colleague... This is Michelle Tarbox. I am a dermatologist and dermatopathologist in Lubbock, Texas at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. Every two weeks, Dermosphere comes at you with some of the latest research in the field of clinical dermatology. Hopefully you find it useful and hopefully it frees up some of your time so that you don't have to spend it combing through journal articles because you trust us to find some of the most relevant things to learn about. This is episode 29. And it's going to be released on June 15th, 2020. Michelle, do you know when episode number one of Dermosphere was released? Ooh, that's some good trivia. I do not know. June 17th, 2019. So as of this episode, we've been going for about a year. And it's been a great ride. So the first article we're going to discuss today is out of a journal called Clinical and Experimental Dermatology, and it is called Serum Triamcinolone Levels During Intensive Inpatient Wet Dressing Therapy. The authors include S.A. Mirza and M.D.P. Davis, and these guys are out of Mayo. So I was so happy to see that this this study had been done because I had been wondering about it basically since fellowship a few years ago. So... We had a couple patients back then who were adolescent kids who had such severe eczema that we admitted them to the hospital and we treated them with wet wraps. So soak in a bathtub and plain water, slather them with triamcinolone 0.1% ointment, and then they put on what they called sauna suits, which looked like they were pajamas made out of garbage sacks. (laughs) And then they slept in those and we would round on them the next day, probably about 20 hours later, so not even 24 hours. And they were already dramatically improved. That was the moment when I became a believer in wet wrap therapy. Because before then I was like, whatever, they've already been using triamcinolone 0.1% twice a day and they're not better. How's this going to help? But Lo and behold, my eyes have been opened, and I have seen the glory of the wet wrap. (laughs) But then I started wondering, you know, with this sort of intensive therapy, is there like an amount of systemic exposure that is significant? Do they get better not because we're putting this triamcinolone on their skin and leaving it there, but because enough steroids just getting absorbed into their blood that it's kind of like giving them a little bit of prednisone? So I was wondering about that. And then last year, you probably remember Michelle, because mm-hmm. we reviewed it, there was an article yeah. about how sunscreen components get absorbed into your blood in not insignificant quantities. Mm-hmm. So then I started wondering what else we put on people's skin gets absorbed into their blood in not insignificant quantities. And I thought again to these patients with their wet wraps and thought again that maybe some of this gets absorbed. In addition, I will eventually get to the article. <laughs> A couple years ago, um, I was hanging out with some of my friends from med school and obviously we're all doctors now and he was saying that his son has eczema and he was using topical steroids and he said Luke so how much of this gets absorbed into his blood when I put it on and I said none and he said what you mean he's that big just because of like my genes and what I feed him I don't believe it (laughs) and he was like so send me some articles saying nothing gets absorbed and I was like 
look up your own articles, man. But then I started wondering about it and I started looking into it and it was actually like kind of difficult to find any articles about topical steroids being absorbed into the blood. So kudos to these authors for publishing this one. And basically the upshot is that it doesn't seem to get absorbed in enough concentration to do anything, but in some ways the jury's still out. Let's get into it. Okay. So Mayo has a long and noble history of this inpatient wet wrap approach. And this is a review of 29 adults that were admitted to Mayo between November 2015 and June 2016 for this wet wrap therapy. And I think it's helpful to go through their specific protocol because every institution is a little bit different. So it's not quite the same thing that I saw in fellowship at Oregon Health and Sciences University. So they put hydrocortisone 2.5% cream to the face and the skin folds, and then triamcinolone 0.1% cream to the trunk and extremities. And then they said, after they put on the steroids, they put on wet dressings that were dampened either with tap water or with 0.25% acetic acid. The dressings were usually in place for about two to three hours, then removed for about an hour so the patient could walk around a bit and shower and whatnot. And then wet dressings were reapplied. And they used this topical steroids, the hydrocortisone 2.5% cream and the triamcinolone cream, with every other dressing change. And they say, therefore, corticosteroids were applied about every six to eight hours. And when they weren't using the corticosteroids with the wet dressings, they were just slathering up with emollients. Um, so that's not quite what we did at OHSU, and it's not quite what I recommend people to do at home, but it's likely comparable. Um, what do you tell people to do if you have them do wet wraps at home, Michelle? I usually tell them to, after a bath or a shower, uh, have the person kind of be patted dry if it's a child or pat themselves dry if it's an adult, and then apply the topical steroid to their worst areas of involvement and then cover that with a layer of Vaseline and then put on warm, wet pajamas and then put over dry pajamas on top of that um, and, you know, sit in that sort of burrito style sometimes they wrap themselves in a robe too if it's colder i'm in lubbock texas so it doesn't really get that cold up here but occasionally in the winter it gets a little chilly yeah, um, down to like 60 yeah you know no i remember there were ice storms occasionally occasional ice storms you know so then uh have the child the person or the child stay in that as long as they can tolerate it and then change into dry pajamas but um most people can do sort of a uh, approximation of a wet wrap for at least 15 to 20 minutes. And there is some impressive absorption into the skin, I think, at least um, at that duration. So, of course, this protocol for an inpatient is more significant time commitment. But I think that they definitely do work. We did the same kind of treatment at the Cleveland Clinic when I was a resident there for severe cases of eczema. And it was sort of night and day after usually one day of admission with this therapy. So similar to what I saw in fellowship then, and what I suggest to mostly as parents, I'm suggesting it to, to do on their kids is very similar to what, you know, I did in fellowship at OHSU. Soak in bathtub for about 10 minutes, get out, don't dry off, don't even pat off while the skin is still dripping wet, slather with triacinolone 0.1% ointment. That's almost always what I use. And then damp top and then dry pajamas or sweatsuit over the top of that so they don't get chilled. So I don't usually have my patients come in the next morning so I can draw their blood and measure their triamcinolone levels. But fortunately, these researchers at Mayo had them captive in the inpatient ward and were able to draw their blood to measure their triamcinolone levels. And it was low, question mark. In some <laughs> patients, it was undetectable, and the highest it got was about 1.1 microgram per deciliter. 
the median was more in the 0.3 range. Um, and it depended on the frequency of dressing changes, but it did not depend on the number of changes, the gender of the patient, the age, the body surface area, or the dressing type. So is one microgram per deciliter any kind of significant absorption? It's a good Crickets question. Crickets is the appropriate answer. You know, I, I looked into this, and one of the only articles I could find was from 1971, um, and it was talking about serum um, concentrations of prednisone and its dependency on serum albumin concentration, uh, and the fact that if you have a low serum albumin concentration, the frequency of prednisone-induced side effects was higher, but I wasn't actually able to find a standard blood level that's therapeutic. What did you find? 90. Well, 1971 must have been the real heyday of this research because um, this article cites a 1971 study that looked <laughs> at a intramuscular triamcinolone injection, 40 milligrams. It's a milligrams. different article. It's different a different article. article. Yeah, mine was prednisone side effects and serum protein levels. Boy, 1971, those were the good old days. <laughs> I was negative nine years old. So they found either, so. the highest plasma triamcinolone concentration was at the three hour mark after this intramuscular injection and it was 51.7 micrograms per deciliter so is one microgram consequential it's tough to say and the authors agree that it's tough to say but the implication is that it's probably not you would want to think about well what's the equivalent like prednisone dose if somebody has one microgram per deciliter of triamcinolone floating around in their blood is that like i gave them 10 milligrams of prednisone or something and they say that's a question that cannot be easily answered <laughs> so in a, an attempt to answer it um not easily <laughs> uh, i looked up a little a little bit more i still couldn't figure out a super satisfying answer i did find one study that compared a triamcinolone 40 milligram intramuscular injection to 40 days of prednisone 40 milligrams a day. Sorry, oh. five days of prednisone 40 milligrams a day. I feel much better about that. <laughs> yes, sorry. This is, was for <laughs> asthma in this study. Okay. So at least somebody out there for one indication thought that an IM triamcinolone 40 milligrams was about equivalent to five days of prednisone 40 milligrams. Um, even though the IV equivalent of 40 milligrams of triamcinolone is 50 milligrams of prednisone, according to various steroid conversion charts. Yeah, there's like a five to four ratio there. But still, then you start feeling better about the one microgram per deciliter versus the 50 microgram per deciliter issue. Mm -hmm. But it's still not 100%. The authors do point out that the triamcinolone half-life in serum is five to eight hours. And then another reasonable question is, can topical steroids suppress the HPA axis? Well, we know that they can because in episode 25, we reviewed a case of a little baby who got pretty striking Cushing syndrome off mm -hmm. of topical steroids in the diaper area. The authors of this study say that there were inconsistent results in various studies, but there was also nothing recent. So they looked at studies ranging um, from 1967 to 1988. So in my opinion, this is a topic that could use some reevaluation here. I'm not mm -hmm. a laboratory scientist, but I must assume we might have some more sophisticated techniques to look at this kind of thing now. I wonder if we could use some studies that look specifically at the HPA axis suppression after wet wraps or other topical corticosteroid use with things like AM cortisol levels and urinary excretion and so on. Mm -hmm. I think you definitely could. 
um, just determine if there's any alteration in the sort of homeostasis of that pathway because, you know, you it's an established test set that you can do to look for inborn anomalies of corticosteroid biosynthesis. So I'm, I'm sure that you could do it for suppression. You would want to have a facility like Mayo where you have the patients captive there so yeah. they can't complain too much when you break into their rooms at 4 a.m. to check their cortisol levels. <laughs> But overall, this study made me feel a bit better when I told my med school friend that likely not enough of it gets absorbed into a significant absorption to affect um, your child's weight anyways. I think that that is a reassuring thing for parents too. And also since we're learning more about the transcutaneous absorption of medications for dermatologists, uh, because this is one of the tried and true therapies for patients with severe eczema flares that really does seem to work very well for them and helps to prevent them from having to get more significant agents like cyclosporin or hopefully pre prevents them from having cutaneous infections because of their burden. Yep, I'm a big fan of wet wraps. And I would say this article made me a little bit more of a fan, but there wasn't much room for the needle to move anyway in that direction. Because you already, you, it was already a therapy that was on your good list, which is nice. I like that. So I also have a couple of steroid-related articles to go over. Um, the first one is an interesting article out of JAMA. So not JAMA Dermatology, but JAMA JAMA. Um, and this is an article looking into the associations between maternal antenatal corticosteroid treatment and mental behavioral disorders in children. So this time, can I just ask, are you saying it's JAMA time? It's JAMA time. JAMA time. I like that. That is hilarious, and we're keeping that. Okay, so um, usually Luke gets the authors that have unusual names and are difficult to pronounce, but this time I got a couple of interesting Finnish articles to go over, and so I actually looked into the um, pronunciation of the first author's name, which is Katri Raikkonen, um, and the way that I was able to figure out that that's actually how you say it is there is a Finnish Formula One race car driver, and there are YouTube videos on how to pronounce his name. Um, I also checked to make sure that Miss, Miss um, Katri is not married to Kimmy, because that would be super cute. Sadly, they are not married. He married a former Miss Scandinavia uh, named Jenny Dahlman. So sadly, not a power couple in that way, but a great author, um, along with her co-author, Eero Kajanti. Uh, so these two, so these researchers looked into the Finnish database. Um, and one of the reasons that's important is that they have a national database that captures a lot of data on their patients, and it facilitates this kind of population-based research. Um, so they were able to look at the utilization of maternal corticosteroids in, in the antenatal period and determine if there was an effect on mental and behavioral disorders in children. Now, as a dermatologist, you might not be familiar with the fact that maternal corticosteroids are used standardly to treat patients who may, may deliver their children um, preterm. So this is used to reduce the risk of respiratory distress syndrome, um, intraventricular hemorrhage, and necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, these are things that can happen with preterm babies that are born before 30 weeks gestation. Uh, in the US in 2016, they actually expanded the use of the corticosteroids to patients between the weeks of 34 weeks and 36 weeks and six days um, if the patient was thought to be imminent to deliver within less than with seven within seven days. So again, a patient that would be considered preterm term would be, you know, late preterm is 37 weeks. 
and after such. So uh, that was an adjustment that was made in 2016. Similar adjustments had also been made in Europe in 2016, but as you're going to find out, uh, were revised for reasons. So that means there's a greater percentage of kids being affected by the use of these antenatal corticosteroids. So if you looked only at children who were delivered preterm, uh, really preterm, which is less than 34 weeks, that was about 2% of the live births in the country. But if you expanded that to children born between 34 and 36 weeks, that was actually up to 10%. So a much greater proportion of infants exposed. So they so wanted to I see remember, sorry, I remember learning okay. about this business of steroids in medical school to like help with the baby's lung maturity if they were mm -hmm. going to be premature. Yeah. And that seems to really be what this study is about. It's specifically steroids used for this purpose. Mm -hmm. And then if there's uh, negative consequences, which there looks like there might be based on this study. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll probably talk a little bit about how this is relevant for us as dermatologists, but we certainly give out plenty of systemic steroids. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, you know, when we're talking about transcutaneous absorption of drugs, I don't think that we could get to a plasma level that would be significant. Uh, when you look at the protocols that are utilized for these antenatal corticosteroid doses, um, the protocol that they used in Finland is actually 12 milligrams of betamethasone administered twice, so once and then 24 hours later, which is equivalent to a total dose of 75 milligrams of prednisone with 37 and a half milligrams at one at basically once and then 24 hours later. So that's a fairly significant dose of prednisone, I think that it would be difficult to get anywhere near that with transcutaneous absorption. Uh, but I think but that with systemic steroids, we certainly could. Oh, so we start wondering again steroids. about like, especially the pregnancy dermatoses, like pemphigoid mm -hmm. gestationis and stuff. And patients who there are some there's a subset of patients that have severe eczema flares in pregnancy, which I think is probably related to some kind of antigenic stimulation from the, the baby. Uh, so one of the reasons they wanted to look into this was because there have been recent expansions in the indication for use beyond 34 gestational weeks, both in Europe and in the United States. And the data on long-term outcomes was limited, especially for infants born at term, because um, this is important to think about because the corticosteroids do cross the placenta and the blood-brain barrier. So there's a theoretical opportunity for these medications to impact development. So they wanted to study antenatal corticosteroid treatment uh, and see if it was associated with mental or behavioral disorders. And so they broke the groups of children down into children born at term, so greater than 37 weeks and zero days, patients born less than term, so 37 weeks. And they also wanted to look to see if unmeasured familial confounding elements might explain associations. So they did a sibling association where if a child was born that had a sibling and there was discordance where one of the children had to have antenatal corticosteroids and the other one didn't, they were able to compare those with the data sets of children that actually were concordant with each other. So I was I really that, happy to see that because one assumes that there's a fair amount of like home life stuff that might lead you to having mental and behavioral disorders, but they corrected for that by having one sibling who had the steroids and one sibling who didn't. So basically the long story short of this entire article is that exposure to 
Um, antenatal corticosteroids was significantly associated with behavioral disorders in children, specifically for those children who were born at term. The association was less rigorous for children who were born preterm, presumably because the risk of other problems related to their prematurity impacting their development was also higher. So the risks of both came up. And so the, the population that was preterm that didn't get corticosteroid treatments had more similar rates of complications with the preterm babies than with the postterm babies where the baby, not postterm, but with the term babies where the term babies that didn't have to have corticosteroid exposure generally had better outcomes than those that did have to. So they actually were able to find 670,000-ish of these children for the analysis in the total population, which were just children in this Finnish database um, born between the years of 2006 and 2017 that were live births that survived one year. So that was the total population of both treated and non-treated children, or exposed and non-exposed children. Um, their median length of follow-up was 5.8 years. The longest follow-up was 11 years. And of that 670,000-ish children, they actually had about 15,000 that were children that had been exposed to corticosteroids in utero. And of the children that were exposed to corticosteroids in utero, 45%, about 6,700 of them were born at term. And about 8,000 um, were born actually preterm. So this were the babies that were actually born before their term came up. Uh, the interesting thing then to look at was the non-exposed children. So the exposed children were about 45% of them had preterm birth sorry, at term birth, and 54% had preterm birth. Of the children that weren't exposed to corticosteroids, understandably less complicated pregnancies. 96-ish um, percent of them were uh, born at term, and only 3% were preterm. So, you know, different populations of babies for sure. They also had these maternal SIB pairs. They found 241,000 term-born maternal SIB pairs, so the mo mother was the same. And they had around 4,000 of those that were discordant for treatment exposure, so they could actually compare them as a family to kind of homogenize some of those familial risk factors. And they broke this down again into groups. So when you looked at the entire cohort, um, treatment with maternal corticosteroids in the antenatal period was significantly associated with a higher risk of any mental or behavioral disorder. And those included things like ADHD, and movement disorders. Um, they included delayed development and sleep disorders. There were kind of a lot of things that they included based off of ICD-10 diagnoses. All specialist diagnosed. All diagnosed by specialists, not diagnosed by primary care, which the kind of correspondence to this article indicates might have limited some of the, you know, actual diagnoses. So there might have been some, some patients that did have developmental or neuro neurological abnormalities that weren't picked up because it was restricted to specialist diagnosis. So they looked at the percentages and the absolute differences. So in the exposed children, it was 12% in the entire cohort versus 6.45 with an absolute difference of 5.56 and a 95% confidence interval between five and six. Their adjusted hazard ratio for the entire cohort of exposed children versus non-exposed was 1.33. Whenever we go over hazard ratios, I think it's always good to remind people what we're actually looking for. So a hazard ratio is basically the chance of the event occurring in the treatment arm, and in this case, it would be, this would be the exposed arm, over the chance of the event occurring in the control arm. And so if the hazard risk 
the hazard ratio is one, there's no association because the numbers would be the same. If the hazard ratio is greater than one, that indicates an increased risk, as in this case, where the hazard ratio is 1.33. Whenever you're looking at a hazard ratio, you have to look at the confidence interval as well, because if the confidence interval captures one, it becomes invalid. The confidence in interval here was 1.26 to 1.41, so that was a significant finding that that hazard, that hazard ratio was 1.33 for the whole cohort. In the so term basically, if you were a baby and you were exposed to these antenatal steroids for this specific reason, mm -hmm. your risk of developing a behavioral disorder was 1.33 times greater than somebody identical to you who did not have that exposure. Exactly. Uh, in their term-borne interventions, they also looked at this group as a subset, and the percentages were 8.89 versus 6.31. Absolute difference there, about 2.58%. And then their hazard ratio here was 1.47. Again, confidence interval was significant, 1.36 to 1.69. Importantly, the group that they found that didn't have an increased risk was their preterm infants. So while there was a difference in the raw percentages of the children that were exposed versus non-exposed that developed any kind of mental or psychiatric disorder, 14.59 um, to 10.71, the hazard ratio for that group was exactly one, and the confidence interval was 0.92 to 1.09. So that captured one, and the hazard ratio actually was one. So that indicated that in that specific population, it didn't necessarily connote extra risk for those babies to have the, st the steroids. And that's probably a good thing, because that's also the group that's most likely to need them. So the babies that are born before 34 gestational weeks are at the greatest risk of the most severe complications of prematurity, which is the intraventricular hemorrhage, necrotizing enterocolitis, and of course that respiratory distress. Babies that are born after 34 weeks can still develop their respiratory distress, but as the authors point out, that's usually transient and treatable and doesn't usually lead to any long-term sequela. So while it's uncomfortable for the baby to have respiratory distress at birth, the risk that might be present utilizing corticosteroids in that older group, that group that's delivered after 34 weeks, may actually be a greater risk for them to have the long-term side effects of the corticosteroid exposure instead of the short-term risk of dealing with the respiratory distress of prematurity. That's definitely important. I think it's mostly important for OB-GYNs, and I think that this article is really directed at them. Um, so I'm, But it's still somehow stuck with me as something important for dermatologists to know about. Yeah. And one of the things I noticed was that the steroids that are used for this purpose, so in Finland it's beta-methasone, mm -hmm. cross the blood brain or cross the cross the placenta, because that's kind of mm -hmm. the idea, right? You want the baby to get some. But mm -hmm. prednisone, for example, doesn't so much. I think it's like a 10 to 1 ratio. So that gives me hope that when we're treating pregnant women with systemic steroids because of some severe dermatosis, that we are not perhaps going to run into this problem. But what do you think, Michelle? What's the takeaway for dermatologists from all this stuff? Well, I think the takeaway for dermatologists is really just to know that this information is out there, first of all. Um, and it's important, I think, for us to know the literature that our colleagues that also treat the same patients that we treat are reading. Um, because, you know, the interpretation of this, if it was not read as carefully or if the understanding of the way 
that steroids are absorbed through the skin was less sophisticated might lead people to be very uncomfortable allowing the use of topical steroids in pregnant women. And sometimes pregnant women develop significant pregnancy-related or other dermatoses that might actually really necessitate the use of topical steroids. So I think that that is kind of an important point. There's a lot of kind of technicality that comes into this um, discussion that I think is, like Luke said, a little bit more relative to people who are actually treating patients as an obstetrician gynecologist. Um, but I do think that it is important to know that this, this data is out there and that is leading to the reevaluation of the protocols that are used to treat women who are possibly going to deliver a baby preterm. So much so that the European guidelines that existed from 2016 to 2019, which recommended it, that expanded use in that larger cohort after 34 weeks, have been redone to reevaluate sort of this kind of risk and have started not to recommend that quite as much. So I think that that was very interesting. The um, response article to this kind of echoed some of the sentiment in the original article. So sometimes when we re review articles here on Dermosphere Podcast, we like to look at the original article as well as any editorials or responses that are done to that same article. So here we have also from the JAMA, still JAMA time, an editorial in response to this article by Sarah B. DeMauro, M-D-M-S-C-E, and it's entitled Antenatal Corticosteroids, Too Much of a Good Thing. And it goes over the fact that the discovery of the use of corticosteroids in very premature infants was actually one of the most important findings in the field of gynecology. So important, actually, that the forest plot from that study is still the logo for the Cochrane database. So if you look up the Cochrane database, there'll be a forest plot kind of encompassed in the logo. And that that study is actually, the, the figure actually comes from a study uh, that was the first systematic review of the use of antenatal corticosteroids. So it's a big deal. I'm for, looking it up right now. Yes, it's like super cute. Um, and it's one of the most important it's, advances in perinatal cute care. cute as a forest plot can be. It's super adorable, right? Um, but the author similarly points out that potentially the use in groups that are not in that really higher risk um, preterm delivery group, the risks of the treatment might outstrip the benefits. And I think both of these authors are sort of advocating for consideration of the mitigating factors that might choose one to utilize the medication in a baby that was less likely to be born premature. Both, are, both authors also bring forth the fact that um, there need to be better metrics to determine which women are really at the highest risk of delivering a baby preterm. The uh, response to the original article noticed that less than 40% of the preterm children were actually exposed to corticosteroids, which means that the number of very premature children uh, who might have benefited from the corticosteroids didn't get the treatment, and that 45% of the corticosteroid-exposed infants were born at term, which potentially indicated that they were placed at some risk without necessarily significant benefit, that they would potentially have only gleaned a minor short-term benefit and might be placed at risk for a longer-term uh, side effects of the study. So I think that, you know, it's something that's good for us to know is in the ether. Um, I think it's important for us to know that, you know, these early exposures can be important. Even some studies have shown that early postnatal corticosteroids have adverse neurologic effects that can be detected in early ch childhood. Um, interestingly, postnatal caffeine citrate, which is used to treat 
uh, apnea of prematurity leads to improvements in motor function in babies at 18 months of age and detectable up to 11 years of age. So that might also make those of us who love coffee feel better. <laughs> yeah, I just <laughs> like the image eating. of these little premature babies with little tiny cups of espresso little in their bassinets. I think it's adorable. And then one other, I think, systemic thing that the response points out is that the traditional five-year grant periods are a little short to assess developmental changes in babies. So the funding of research studies, especially for um, perinatal side effects, may need to be expanded to allow for capture of these later developing sequela. So I think that that's a you know really interesting set of articles and something that we should be aware of because our patients and our colleagues may be reading this literature and utilizing it to extrapolate the importance of our use of topical or systemic corticosteroids in pregnant women. Of course, we're all hopefully very careful when we treat people in that group, but important, I think, to know. Yes, um, just like you say, patients might see this information and get pretty nervous if you suggest treating them with prednisone during pregnancy. But remember, it doesn't cross, doesn't cross the placenta. I feel like that's an important point. And also, this suggests that we probably need more research in our end anyway to see if the, our sorts of systemic steroids lead to any kind of outcomes like this. I agree. And I would like to leave that article again with the image of the newborn babies with cups of coffee. I think it's so cute. The next article I would like to discuss is about beta blockers for rosacea. It's out of the JAD, and its title is Use of Beta Blockers for Rosacea-Associated Facial Erythema and Flushing, a Systematic Review and Update on Proposed Mode of Action. And the authors include Jay Logger, R.J.B. Dreesen, and these folks are out of the city of Nijmegen in the Netherlands. Oh, like so, Nijmegen breakage system syndrome. That guy, that's how I always remember that. Yeah, so Nijmegen breakage syndrome, I actually had a patient with this in fellowship, and it's like ataxia telangiectasia, except without the telangiectasias, if I'm remembering it correctly. I think but they right. still have the immunosuppression, and this patient had cutaneous findings because of that. Anyway, so I was excited to see this article because I often find myself telling patients we're a lot better at treating the papules and pustules of rosacea than we are at treating like the flushing and the telangiectasia type. Mm -hmm. So this was a systemic, systematic review of PO beta blockers that was for the flushing slash persistent erythema rosacea symptoms. They discovered that there were nine studies worth including in their review, and most were small and retrospective, so keep that in mind. They point out that the flushing and erythema of rosacea are complex and probably multifactorial, and the, currently the only approved treatments for them are topical bromonidine, the um, brand name is Mervaso, and oxymetazoline, the brand name is Rofade, and both of those are ad alpha adrenergic receptor agonists, which constrict the blood vessels. And I think they work fairly well, but as I tell patients, they're not a cure. They affect mm -hmm. last maybe 12 hours. And so especially if you have like an event in the evening, you might find yourself using it twice a day. And these authors say that rebound erythema is common, especially for bromonidine. They don't mention the financial cost, so nope. <laughs> I will do so. Mervaso uh, bromonidine is $480 for a month, and Rofade oxymetazoline is $520. Yep. Um, however, here's a little trick. Um, one of our compounding pharmacies, you can put together oxymetazoline 1% cream for $40. Mm -hmm. and, and then I just have the patient send me half of the $480 they saved to me as a finder's <laughs> fee. 
And we know that lasers like PDL are also an option for these things, but the authors of this study say it's kind of out of the scope of this particular review. So I found myself kind of enjoying a review of the physiology of this stuff because <laughs> I hadn't looked, hadn't been exposed to this since medical school, I don't think. So let's review some physiology. I don't know if this is bell worthy. Could be. Yeah, I haven't it could be. busted out the bell yet. Yeah. So uh, the bell means pimpable content. So if you are a at an academic institution, you might ask your learners this. And learners, this means you might get asked about it, especially on a test or something. So first you have sympathetic nerves. And they send impulses. And those impulses release catecholamines. And those catecholamines, like epinephrine and norepinephrine, or if you're British, adrenaline and noradrenaline, <laughs> they bind to receptors, which are called adrenoreceptors. And adrenoreceptors are present in lots of tissues, including blood vessels. And, so, and in addition to these sympathetic nerves that are specifically sending catecholamines out to bind there, there's also just catecholamines circulating in your bloodstream, and those also can bind to those receptors. There are three types of adrenergic receptors, of adrenoreceptors. Alpha, one, beta one, and beta two. Um, not exclusively, alpha receptors are in cutaneous blood vessels, and we know that alpha agonists cause constriction of the vessels. I like to remember that by looking at the Greek letter alpha and imagining, imagining myself grabbing its two little tails and pulling. I like it. Imagine the little hole getting smaller in the middle. Uh, mm -hmm. Beta-1 receptors are mainly in the heart, and you have one heart, beta-1, that's how I remember that one. And beta-2 <laughs> receptors are in the lungs. You have two lungs, at least most of us do. <laughs> They're also in the GI tract, the blood vessels, and then the skin and keratinocytes and fibroblasts. So a beta-blocking medication can block all those types, or it can block just one or two types. So this is why they're sometimes called selective versus non-selective beta-blockers. So especially if you're going after stuff in the skin... Ideally, you don't want to mess with beta-1, because that's basically just in the heart. But sadly, oftentimes we do. So presumably in rosacea, beta blockers reduce erythema by blocking the beta-2 receptors on the smooth muscles of cutaneous arterial vessels. And so without that, they constrict. And they also can reduce anxiety and tachycardia mainly perhaps through their cardiac effects. And we know that anxiety and tachycardia can perhaps exacerbate flushing reactions. Now, as a pediatric dermatologist, I mostly think about beta blockers because we use propranolol to treat infantile hemangiomas. So do infantile hemangiomas have a bunch of adrenergic receptors? Well, it's confusing. <laughs> When I was a fellow, one of my mentors uh, provided me with an article that purported to explain why propranolol might work for infantile hemangiomas. And I read it at the time and I became confused. And so about a week ago in preparation for this article, I looked at it again and I again find my, found myself confused. So I've decided that that means it's not a problem with me, it's just confusing. So <laughs> I would say that why propranolol works for infantile hemangiomas um, still is not super well-known, but there probably are some adrenergic receptors in there, but that's not the whole story. All right, back to rosacea. So in the nine studies that they included in this review, all of them examined three different non-selective beta blockers, natalol, carvedilol, and propranolol. Okay, so those are all non-selective. An example of a selective beta blocker is atenolol. 
Um, so these were effective, but in small numbers because these were small studies. So we're talking like 10 patients or so. And the most evidence seems to be for carvedilol and propranolol. And the authors of this study suggest that carvedilol may be the more tolerable of the two. In terms of dosage, so again, if you want to do this for some of your patients with erythema and flushing of rosacea, carvedilol was started at 3.125 to 6.25 milligrams. Why does carvedilol come in such bizarre dosing? What was wrong with know. just making a three milligram tab? It makes you wonder if it's already designed to protect like the trade named drugs. Sometimes they do that with the weird percentages and dosages. Oh, like hemangiol. Yeah, 4.2 mm. or something like that. Um, so that 3.125 to 6.25 milligrams was two to three times daily and titrated up to a max of 31.25 milligrams per day. Propranolol was started at 10 milligrams TID and then titrated up as tolerated until symptoms improved, which was generally somewhere between 20 and 40 milligrams, two to three times a day. Natalol, one of the nice things about Natalol is that it's a once daily dose, but there's very limited data on its use. The most common adverse events are bradycardia, hypotension, bronchospasm, dizziness, somnolence, and fatigue. Propranolol has a few more, which perhaps is why the author suggests carvedilol might be a better choice. It includes diarrhea, nausea, and sexual dysfunction in males. Um, and if you're giving them to a baby for an infantile hemangioma, the most concerning side effect is um, hypoglycemia, uh, which doesn't seem to be as much of an issue in adults, uh, but the idea is that it can kind of mask the symptoms of hypoglycemia and, and things can just get worse and worse. Mm -hmm. All beta blockers can exacerbate asthma and psoriasis. Woo! So um, in residency, I invented a mnemonic about the things that exacerbated mnemonic, uh, exacerbated psoriasis. And it was the things that got your psoriasis blazing. B-L-A-S-I-N. I love this. Beta blockers, lithium, antimalarials, steroid withdrawal, and interferon. Interferon covers the I and the N at the end of blazon. I like it. So I like it There a lot. you go. Very nice. So they can make psoriasis bad. They can even maybe unmask it or sort of cause it. So if you've got somebody with new onset psoriasis, you might look at their med list, beta blockers. If you're thinking of doing this for one of your rosacea patients, you should know that the contraindications for beta blockers are congestive heart failure, though I think there's people with congestive heart failure on beta blockers. Just like, let my med school friend who doesn't know too much about topical steroids take care of them. He's a cardiologist <laughs> now. Um, you don't want to give beta blockers to somebody in cardiogenic shock. I sure hope they're not coming into my dermatology clinic anyway. <laughs> Bradycardia, less than 50, arterial or atrioventricular block, Hyperactive airway disease, because remember, it's got the asthma issue. And then Raynaud's disease, so that's something to look out for. And the authors say you should monitor heart rate and blood pressure, but they don't go into any further detail. Aside from, I guess, bradycardia less than 50, you want to stop. Um, they do point out that 10 to 20% of the patients in these studies discontinued therapy due to adverse events. So that's a fairly high rate, but that means, you know, 80 to 90% of people wanted to keep taking them, presumably because they were effective. They pointed out, finally, that topical beta blockers like Timolol haven't been studied. Hmm, something mm. you can potentially do. I know. I was thinking that while I was reading this. I was like, ooh. And they pointed out there are a few other things that people have tried. Some people tried clonidine. It didn't work. Ondansetron, strangely, worked for two people in a couple case studies. Interesting. Prostaglandin-mediated flushing, possibly, there. 
I like the fact that that's an option. I'm still not 100% sure that I would feel comfortable providing Carvedilol to somebody. I've never typed that medicine into our order form. Um, mm -hmm. But maybe if people are asking me about options. I've had a couple of patients that had rosacea with sort of emotionally mediated flushing that was disturbing to them in their job performance that we've treated successfully with propranolol and they've really responded positively to that, had a good clearance of it, felt better. Um, propranolol is generally pretty well tolerated. Some people take it for like performance anxiety. One thing you want to be aware of though is with all of the beta blockers, if you have a patient who has rosacea and is also a telogen effluvium patient, beta blockers do tend to sometimes induce hair shedding. So you want to be thoughtful about using it in a patient who also has hair loss because you might make the rosacea better but make the hair loss worse. Pro tip. Yeah, they didn't mention that in the study, but I'll look out Rock for in it. a hard place. <laughs> Speaking of alopecia, look at that segue. I am um, unreasonably proud of myself right now. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I have an interesting article out of the JAD, um, and this is by authors Carlos Gustavo Wambier and many, 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 many other, other authors and senior author Andy Gorin at all and at all, all there's a lot of them um, and these are uh, authors out of Spain as well as the Department of Dermatology in Rhode Island and the article is called androgenic uh, sorry androgenetic alopecia present in the majority of hospitalized COVID-19 patients the Gabrin sign and so they have a nice photograph of Dr. Frank Gabrin at the beginning of this article he was the first United States physician that actually died of COVID um, he was a really interesting person. He was an emergency medicine physician, and he was actually a survivor of bilateral testicular cancer. He went to um, the University of Pittsburgh for undergraduate and then was uh, got his doctor of osteopathy degree, so he was a DO at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. Then he worked in various places um, in New York, and then he actually joined the, the military. He was the United, United States Navy Medical Corps and was honored with the Navy Achievement Medal, so like a really nice man and a very accomplished physician. He worked um, at different times in his career at Case Western and Ohio State, was a flight cert physician for Metro Life uh, Flight in Cleveland and a volunteer physician for the Adult Medical and Early Intervention HIV AIDS program at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, so it sounds like he was one of the like really amazing people, uh, people who I've heard speak of him that they that that he taught uh, hold sort of a reverence for him. So it's a real tragedy that this gentleman's life was lost to COVID-19. Uh, the reason that they want to kind of name this presentation, the Gabrin sign is that Dr. Gabrin was a very handsome fella. Um, he did have uh, androgenetic alopecia. And some of the studies that have been done thus far for the patients who are hospitalized and have bad outcomes from COVID-19 show a disproportionate amount of them displaying androgenetic alopecia. Uh, in this study, they found that 42% of women and 79% of men that were hospitalized for COVID-19 had androgenetic alopecia. For reference, the prevalence of androgenetic alopecia in women is 13% if you look at all comers, if you look at sorry, 13% if you have like premenopausal women, overall about 19%. For those in their ninth decade, about 32%. So 42% of women is an overrepresentation. And about half of men, so about 50% of men in the general population might have androgenetic alopecia. 79% of those hospitalized for COVID-19 had it in this study. So they looked to see um, what the connections might be between COVID-19 and androgenetic alopecia. 
they wanted to look and present some further epidemiologic evidence that androgen sensitivity, which is one of the mediators of androgenic alopecia, may be associated with severe symptoms leading to hospitalization due to COVID-19. They had a previous report that they cited um, that was limited to 41 males. This communication adds more patients to that through three tertiary hospitals in Madrid, Spain. And they indicate that the patients were actually randomly examined by dermatologists that were assisting with the overwhelming amount of admitted patients. So these were dermatologists that had been redeployed, as it were, to work as more general physicians. And so they started to record the age, gender, and alopecia diagnosis of those patients with COVID-19 that they were taking care of. For the male patients, alopecia severity was evaluated using the Hamilton-Norwood scale. For males and for females, they used the Ludwig scale. And a couple of episodes ago, we actually reviewed some of these hair loss scales, if you want to go back and listen to that. Um, the scores were categorized into groups, no alopecia for patients who are either a Hamilton-Norwood scale of one or if they were Ludwig scale, um, zero. So that's the no alopecia group. Moderate androgenetic alopecia for the Hamilton-Norwood scale of two or the Ludwig scale of one and severe androgenetic alopecia for scores above those. They had 175 individuals with confirmed COVID-19. Among the patients, 122 were males and 53 were females. And this is in keeping with the data coming out of a lot of countries, which indicates that the severest symptoms are going to be represented disproportionately in male patients. I think uh, uh, we mentioned that in our COVID bonus episode, which we released, uh, I don't know, four to six weeks ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. We talked about this business of androgen stuff being involved. So the manlier you are, the more likely COVID is to strike you down. So, it's like the Lex Luthor. It goes after <laughs> Superman. Oh, my goodness. Well, it goes after Lex Luthor more than Superman. Superman's got like... I guess that's true. Yes, Lex, so I know. Is Lex Luthor manlier than Superman? I mean, well, I, I've always kind of thought that Lex Luthor had, like, alopecia totalis, though, because it, like, happened really fast for him. But anyway, we digress. You know more about his background than I do. I do. Okay. Kudos. Um, I I was quite the Smallville queen when I was in residency. Love that show. Okay, so overall, 67% of the patients that presented with COVID-19 had clinically relevant androgenetic alopecia, definitely an over-representation of the general population rate. And the frequency of androgenetic alopecia, as I said earlier, was 79%. The frequency of androgenetic alopecia in females was 42% in these sick hospitalized patients. The median age of the female patients was 71 with the interquartile range of 22 years, and the median range of the male patients for their ages was 62.5 with an interquartile range of 20 years. So the admitted males were generally in a younger age group than the admitted females, again, possibly correlating with the disease having greater severity in males. So for to take a woman down in a way that she needed to go to the hospital, usually the woman had to be more frail and more elderly than her male counterpart. Uh, So they... In both groups, when they looked at those with no alopecia, the ages were kind of all over the place. But when they looked at this, the groups that had severe alopecia, um, the higher age distribution was uh, present in both groups. So if the patient had severe androgenetic alopecia, they were likely to be an older patient. Now, some of that is possibly the fact that as we age, more of us are going to develop alopecia. But it is interesting that there was a connection there. 
Um, they wanted to look at the prevalence of age-matched males in a similar Caucasian population. Their reference population was between 31 and 53%. I think about 50% is what we normally talk about in this country. And the female position, population with the highest androgenetic alopecia prevalence reported that they cite here was 38%. Here we talked earlier about how you can have up to 32% in the ninth decade. Um, this was for patients over the age of 70. So both groups definitely overrepresented patients who had androgenetic alopecia. The reason they think this is important is that if the hypothesis of androgen-mediated COVID-19 severity is demonstrated in larger studies, then anti-androgens could potentially be used in the treatment of COVID-19. There have actually been some animal studies that have looked at, looked at this, including a study on male mice that were administered a lethal dosage of SARS-CoV. And then some of those mice were given flutamide therapy, which is an anti-androgen. 20% of those mice demonstrated a protective effect when they were given the flutamide. So that is potentially the uh, direction we could go with some therapeutic options. Antiandrogens potentially could be studied in the treatment prophylaxis of severe COVID-19. They point out that the size of the sample and the lack of a control group are limitations in the study. They also noted that since dermatologists actively graded AGA, observer bias was possible, and the precise androgenetic alopecia rate in age-matched, non-admitted COVID-19 patients was still known. Uh, they wanted to think about future studies where, you know, the evaluation of lung involvement could be correlated potentially with the presence of androgenetic alopecia, or if the presence of androgenetic alopecia was higher in those in the intensive care units or with a fatal outcome. And they pointed out that one of the reasons they think that this is potentially a useful marker for patients who are at risk is because androgenetic alopecia severity reflects the androgen activity over age, both of which are vulnerable vulnerability characteristics for COVID-19. We talked a little bit about how the androgen receptor has a role in priming the virus to enter the cells, and this might be one of the mechanisms by which it affects patients of different genders and with different androgen sensitivity levels at a different rate. They make a point to distinguish telogen effluvium from androgenetic alopecia, and I do think we're going to see a huge number of patients with telogen effluvium that recover from COVID-19 because it is such a severe illness. Um, so those of us who are treating any patients who have suffered from this condition, I think that we are going to see this. And then and the people in the general population who are just stressed out about the whole corona virus era. I mean, that's true. That's true. We probably are just going to generally have more intelligent effluvium. It's going to be hair time. everywhere. It's we got to think a, of something to do with all that hair. It's going to be a hairy situation. We could knit it into masks, you know, repurpose it. Uh -huh. so that we can, yeah, so that we can, Take you know, that virus. Self. It might be, you know, who knows? Maybe hair masks are the magic bullet that help us to get over this. Um, so you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> We're going to tra trademark it. Dermosphere hair masks. Protect yourself from COVID-19 and utilize your shedding hair from telogen effluvium due to all the Guaranteed stress. to be 90% louse-free. Oh, Lord. But um, I think that, you know, it's a very nice idea to have this named as the Gabrin sign to sort of... Um, remind people that this physician gave his life um, trying to protect people who had this condition. And they actually cite some of his writing. He was quite a gifted writer and wrote about his experience as a physician having testicular cancer. And it's a beautiful essay. It's called um, Discovering the Heart of Care. It was published in Medical Economics in 2012, and I encourage every doctor to read it. He was a special person. So the idea here is that if somebody's got androgenetic alopecia and you notice them while wheeling them to the emergency room because you think they've got COVID-19, perhaps they're at risk for more serious complications. So you say to your resident, oh, there's that Gabrin sign. We've really got to watch this one. 
And we should pour one out for Dr. Gabrin and also apparently for the mice that have been injected with lethal doses of COVID-19 to help us understand things. Mm-hmm. Little mousy-sized containers of Rogaine just... Um, okay, so I want to talk about this next real quick article. It's from the JAD, and it's about dupilumab for bolus pemphigoid. So the title is Dupilumab as a Novel Therapy for Bolus Pemphigoid, a multi-center case series. And the authors include Rana Abdat, Reed Waldman, and David Rosemarin. These are folks from Tufts, the University of Connecticut, and the University of Miami, and Yale. Oh, and I should mention that um, it was episode 26 where we talked about hair loss scales. That was an article about spironolactone for androgenetic alopecia. So this was a multi-center case series of 13 patients with bolus pemphigoid, and the short story is dupilumab was pretty effective. So 12 of them got better with dupilumab, and half of them cleared completely. Most of these people had refractory bolus pemphigoid, as you might guess, because they were using this off-label medication. Um, One of them was just unable to use other systemic agents because of comorbidities. Three of these 13 patients were on other concomitant treatments as well, but they were not being adequately controlled, and so this dupilumab was added. And how were they dosed? How were they diagnosed with bolus pemphigoid, you might ask? I might ask. Well, I'll tell you. It was one of the following things. H&E, DIF, or serum antibodies, plus clinical suspicion. Um, we might remember that in episode seven, we talked about the non-bullous variant of bullous pemphigoid, which said don't rely on H&E. So as an I've aside. a couple people I found with that, like since then for doing extra DIFs. And, you know, it is important. Those patients recover so much more quickly once you get the diagnosis right. Funny how that works. <laughs> so satisfying, isn't it? That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite articles that we've reviewed. So this study, these 13 patients had no adverse events or adverse effects to the dupilumab, and the time for response was one to five months. Median was two months. They got the dupilumab either through the patient's insurance, so they must have some gifted writers, or they (laughs) used dupilumab samples. All the patients were started on standard doses of dupilumab, which was 600 milligrams once, and then 300 milligrams every two weeks thereafter. And then people who didn't respond or responded only partially, were escalated to 300 milligrams a week, so instead of every other week, um, if they could get it. Mm-hmm. And everybody who didn't clear and the one patient who res- didn't respond at all were on the every other week dosing. So the implication is that maybe if we increased it to every week, they would have gotten better. Because three of the seven patients who cleared completely did require that every week dosing. They draw some parallels to eosinophilic esophagitis, another eosinophilic condition, which can be treated with dupilumab, and some of those patients apparently need the weekly dosing as well. Why might dupilumab work for bolus pemphigoid? Well, they have found elevated levels of IL-4 and IL-13 and blister fluid and stuff, Um, and then they also talk about some potential downstream effects that might inhibit eosinophil chemotaxis and things. But I think for our purposes, the important thing is that it might work. So maybe try dupilumab if you've got somebody with bolus pemphigoid who's not a candidate for other medications or has failed them. And as the authors point out, it would be real nice to have a systemic agent that's immunomodulatory rather than immunosuppressive for this condition. Especially since most of the patients are elderly or older adults, you know, it would be really nice to be able to avoid having to do severe immune suppression for them. Yes. As an aside, just as long as we're talking about dupilumab, 
two weeks ago or so. It was approved for children age six and up. Woot, Yay! Woot! Yay! So the pediatric dermatologists are all very happy about that. That's very exciting. The dosing uh, is weird, though. It's 600 yeah. milligrams once. So the same dose you would give to an adult, not the 400 you'd give to a teenager. And then it's 300 milligrams every four weeks instead of every two weeks. So I don't really get it from a pharmacokinetic standpoint. If this medicine can be dosed every four weeks, then how come other people have to get it every two weeks? That is but interesting. Hmm. I'm so excited to hear that that's pr approved for pediatric patients uh, over the age of six. That is very, very cool. Uh, we have an interesting little commentary on reevaluating the ABCD criteria using a consecutive series of melanomas by the authors Rebecca Liu and Laura K. Ferris, who were the original authors of the ABCD article we reviewed last podcast. Um, this was published in the JAD in May. Uh, both of these physicians are from the University of Pittsburgh. And this was basically a response to Dr. Goldsmith's letter in response to their original paper. So they Which wrote we a paper. also reviewed. Yes, we did. So they wrote a paper, Dr. Goldsmith wrote a letter, and they're writing a letter back now. So a nice little dialogue going on here in the literature. Um, so this is a response to the letter for the research of the ABCDs in melanoma. They point out that the intent of their study was to evaluate a series of consecutive melanomas and look for the true prevalence of ABCD characteristics. If you recall from our discussion of Dr. Goldsmith's letter, his kind of point of passion was that the D in the ABCD criteria should be rebranded, as it were, to be for dark color instead of for diameter, and that the colors uh, are more, potentially more relevant than the size of the lesion. So the authors of this response letter now um, and the original study point out that when studying the color criterion, the colors dark brown and black were options for the three evaluating dermatologists, and they found that for all lesions for which color could be evaluated um, and met their consensus criteria, 69.1% of, per of the lesions had dark brown or black pigmentation. And for melanomas less than 6 millimeters, 67.8 were either dark brown or black. So color was a common uh, element among melanomas that were both larger and smaller, that dark color. They didn't include dark color in their findings initially because they hadn't um, compared them to the patient's other melanocytic lesions. So the photography that was used to evaluate the lesions for the study were focused on the lesion to be biopsied. So there wasn't a representative view of the whole patient to see if the melanoma was darker than the patient's other nevi. They right. A, so you wondered what the definition of dark was. Is it dark right. compared to like some generic brown paint that you have next to you? Or is it dark compared to their other moles? In which case, isn't it kind of like the ugly duckling thing? Yeah, I, I have thought that, you know, if we're talking just about darkness as a measure of comparison against other melanocytic nevi, that sort of falls into the ugly, duck, ugly duckling sign. I think that the qualification of the lesion as black or not is a little bit more of an objective criteria. And I think that that is something that they point out here next when they're talking about a, a study by Carrera et al. Um, and that was done in the JAMA in 2016 that looked at dermoscopic criteria to differentiate nevi from melanoma. In that study, they found that melanomas were twice as likely to have black pigmentation compared to nevi, but for dark brown, the odds ratio for it to be a melanoma versus a nevus was um, 0.8. So 
We talked about hazard ratios earlier in the podcast. Let's talk for a second about odds ratios. Odds ratios measure the strength of the association between two events. Um, the two events are completely independent if the odds ratio equals one. So it's kind of similar to the hazard ratio in that way. Um, if the odds, so the odds ratio kind of equals the odds of A in the presence of B um, and the odds of A in the absence of B. So if you have an odds ratio of one, it's you know no relationship between the two things. If the odds ratio is greater than one, A and B are positively associated. If the odds ratio is less than one, A and B are negatively associated. So here, for dark brown color, it actually was negatively associated with the diagnosis of melanoma. So the authors point out that this suggests that many benign lesions may be dark brown, fewer benign lesions are black. So, you know, black color is more of a yes-no question. Um, they did not assess the impact of dark color on patient physician recognition. Um, they did compare patient detected and physician detected melanomas and patient detected melanomas were not significantly more likely to meet the ABCD criteria or to be black in color. They also reiterate that many of their melanomas were less than six millimeters in diameter and they supported the conclusion by another author Avasi et al that the diameter criteria should not be used in isolation but rather in conjunction with other criteria. Um, most melanomas in their sample displayed at least two ABCD criteria. More than 40% had all four. They hypothesized, and I think we talked about this last time as well, that probably the increasing frequency of small diameter melanomas might be attributed to the wider use of dermoscopy. And then they use one of my phrase, favorite phrases I've ever seen in the literature, which is that it says, it is interesting to note that even in this post-dermoscopy era, the consecutive series of melanomas still largely followed the ABCD rule. So, they, they kind of want to do a middle-of-the-road approach. They say it seems that D could be used to represent both diameter and dark, as each was present in more than half of melanomas. They point out that not all patients undergo regular skin exams, and patient education for that reason is important to improving early detection. So when we're talking about patient-directed measurements, we want to potentially emphasize sensitivity over specificity. And remember, sensitivity is the true positive rate, so it's all true positives over all positives, true positives and false negatives. If you emphasize the sensitivity rate, your goal there is then to make the smallest number of false negatives. So this would be the fewest people with a melanoma that goes undetected. The consequence of a false negative in this circumstance would be possible morbidity and death. So this is the whole thing I tell my patients where if you see something that's strange on your skin, call me. I would rather see uh, 100 self-selected patients presenting with a seborrheic keratosis to catch one patient with a melanoma than to miss a melanoma. They want the dermatologist to focus more on specificity. And specificity is true negative rate. So that's true negatives over true negatives plus false positives. So when we emphasize specificity, we're trying to minimize the rate of false positives. These are the patients that would like have a seborrheic keratosis that got biopsied to rule out melanoma. Um, so if you went to a kind of a catastrophic situation where in the dystopian future, we have bizarre healthcare given by robots and there's a biopsy vending machine and people can just walk up to this biopsy vending machine and self-select for biopsies, you would have a so horrible rate of sensitivity. So that's our value in a way as dermatologists is we add to that specificity. We're able to tell the difference between things that do need a biopsy and don't need a biopsy. So the shavomatic biopsying anything the patient requests would really decrease the specificity. And specificity, I kind of like to think of like accountant, an accountant would think of. Because when you're looking at specificity with an instrument like this, uh, having a more specific test means that you're saving unnecessary care, which means you're saving potentially money. So you're being more specific versus a sensitive person who's like touchy feely and wants to save all the whales and stuff like that. So you're sparing the greatest number of false negatives, protecting the most people from a 
missed diagnosis of melanoma. So I think that this is a, a cute uh, article, it's a nice response. Um, I think that probably the right answer is to have the D and ABCD stand for both. What do you think, Luke? Well, first I was going to ask you what Lex Luthor's role is in this dystopian future with shavomatic machines. Oh, he invented it. I mean, come on. He hates dermatologists because he has alopecia totalis and we weren't able to cure him. So he designed the biopsiomatic to put us out of business. Okay, so we need some pharmaceutical companies to figure out alopecia totalis so we don't face that future. Yes, in the near future. And then I think D should stand for duckling. <laughs> so like ugly duckling. I think exactly. that's cute. And I it really would be like cute. That. That's cute, and it would, could encompass like both darker nevi and larger nevi because the ugly duckling could be a larger, more unusual-looking nevus than the patient's traditional nevi, and it could also be a darker or black nevus. So I kind of like that. Plus, dermatology needs like a cute mascot. Yeah, like the little the nevus duck. I think that's adorable. Um, and then I have the shortest, quickest last article, um, which is something. I love because I'm a dermoscopy nerd, and this is an article about using dermoscopy to actually diagnose Lish nodules on brown eyes, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, this is out of the International Journal of Dermatology by authors Sumaya Gara and Fatin Zeglawe et al. They're from Tunisia, and they report on making the diagnosis of neurofibromatosis, one, by detecting Lish nodules utilizing dermoscopy to look at the iris, and they have a group of six patients that they performed non-contact dermoscopy on. I'm glad they didn't put the dermatoscope on the eyeball. That seems like that would be mean. Uh, they looked at four patients that were male and two patients that were female, age 3, 12, 16, 19, 24, and 31. And these patients were selected because they had multiple cafe au lait spots or they had axillary freckling or neurofibromas. And they were able to detect the Lish nodules in all of these patients as a lighter sort of protuberant lesion on the surface of the iris. So in all of their cases, they were able to find multiple sharply demarcated round nodules sized one to two millimeters on the surface of the iris. The color here was lighter than the background brown. Now that's important that these patients all have brown eyes. In patients with blue eyes or lighter colored eyes, the Lish nodules will actually show up as brown spots. So I was taught that these are kind of little, almost like melanocytic hamartomas of the iris. So I always thought of them as like little teeny tiny nevi of the, the irises. And uh, they point out that the utility of dermoscopy is helpful because slit lamp exam uh, is, the is the sort of gold standard to make these diagnoses, but sometimes getting a patient in to see ophthalmology can create a delay and potentially if there's access to care issues, a dermatoscope is an easy handheld device. They were able in all patients, even the younger children, to photographically and dermoscopically evaluate the children, although they point out that a few attempts were sometimes necessary in the younger children. Their youngest kid in this was a three-year-old. And they point out that the cafe au macules and intertriginous freckling are early signs of neurofibromatosis followed by Lish nodules with a prevalence of 40% at the age of four and about 70% at the age of 10. So I think that is bell-worthy. The neurofibromas usually develop later in life. So this is something that you could potentially pick pick up as a, as a dermatologist. You could use an easy handheld tool to diagnose it. They also found that dermoscopic examination could distinguish Lish nodules from the mammalations, which are usually more numerous, regularly distributed and conical. It kind of looks like an iris has got keratosis pilaris if you have um, iris mammalations. 
and also was able to be distinguished from the tapioca-like appearance of iris melanoma or the granulomata that can happen on the iris as well. So I think that it's a neat way to use your dermatoscope. I've actually used um, my dermatoscope to look at people's irises in the past if they've had like a little freckle on their eye or if they've had... Um, any kind of lesions that looked a little bit interesting in the in the ocular area. And, you know, it's actually not that hard. It is a very bright light, um, but usually you can get a decent exam and a decent photograph. So neat way to examine people, a relatively non-invasive thing to do, even if you have a smaller child, and a way to provide greater access. Yeah, and the photographs they have are pretty cool. I was thinking that, especially as a pediatric dermatologist, the people I would potentially be diagnosing are pretty young, and I don't know if they'd want to sit still for the two or three minutes it would take me to just like stare at their eyeball with my dermatoscope. <laughs> so taking a picture seems like a good idea. So if you've got one of those camera setups and you can get it set up, take a picture, and then you can examine it at your leisure, I think that might be a good way to go. I like it. That is all we got for today, friends. So thank you so much for hanging out with us. And thanks also to our institutions, the University of Utah for supporting the podcast and Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. You can find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com. It's got our entire archive of episodes there, including bonus episodes and demo episodes. And it's also a good way to get in touch with us. Other good ways to get in touch with us are Facebook and Twitter. We are Dermosphere podcast on both of those and um we are hopefully going to be getting some more content well we are we are getting more content up there i should say um posting dermoscopy challenges and clinical challenges and some pearls and things like that so you're welcome to come hang out with us more than welcome you are encouraged to come hang out with us on social <laughs> media as well i like it we will see you guys in two weeks Stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane. 